0: Okay, hello. Um, Welcome, everybody, to the MSE and to the Forum for European Philosophy. Very glad to see so many of you here. Tonight, um, my name is Christina Musold. I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum and a Fellow in the Philosophy Department here. And it's my great pleasure to introduce my colleague, Emily McTernan, to you tonight. She's also, at the moment, a Fellow in the Philosophy Department and from September this year will be a lecturer in the uh, Political Science Department at UCL. And... um, Today's talk is part of the series that we have uh, at the forum together with the department and other um, institutions at the LSE, which is called Philosophy at LSE. So basically the idea is that people working in philosophy at LSE, whether it be at the philosophy department or in other institutions, present to you um, work of theirs that we hope will be of interest to you and that we hope that we can engage you a bit um, in, in discussion about. And um, Emily's research interests, obviously, as you might have guessed, are in political philosophy. In particular, her research focuses on three debates. Um, One is the scope of justice and how it extends to choice of individuals, which I assume will be part of today's talk as well, maybe a little bit. Um, the, The second focus is the role of responsibility within egalitarian theory of justice. And the third is the relevance of empirical evidence to political Philosophy And today she will talk to us about um, justice, responsibility and the relation to um, welfare. So I'm looking forward to that, and um, yeah, just hand over to Emily. Thanks. Thanks for the introduction, and thank you all for coming.
1: Um I'll keep you. So I'll start by describing what I take to be some of the debates surrounding responsibility within public debate about certain issues of welfare in particular. So here's what I think the role of responsibility is in contemporary political debate. Here are three examples. So one example is in the context of health So we ask questions like, should people be held responsible for the unhealthy lifestyle choices they make? So if they choose to smoke, or if they choose to eat unhealthily, or if they choose not to exercise enough, should they bear the costs of those bad or imprudent health choices? Or should society. So that's one place where talk of responsibility enters into our political debate. Here's another place that's co- it's common within public debate at the moment. So that's on unemployment benefit. So the question is, should unemployment benefit be conditional on efforts to find work? And that, I think, again, is a way to try and introduce responsibility into welfare. So in particular, it's some thought along the lines of the hardworking taxpayer shouldn't have to pay for the lazy scrap, right? This is the ID. So you see it in something like the Daily Mail. And this is again a notion of responsibility coming in of who bears the responsibility and for what? In this case, who bears responsibility for supporting themselves. And here's a different way in which a notion that's the opposite of responsibility comes in. So the notion of luck. So here's what I take to be a popular view that has quite broad based political support, at least in theory. And that's that of social mobility, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. The idea that the position of your birth shouldn't determine entirely where you end up in a society. So it's not okay if those who are born (coughs) into lower socioeconomic groups remain there and have no chance of escaping that grief. So that's the role of luck playing, right? That we should mitigate those effects of luck. And responsibility has come to play a very central role within political philosophy in recent times where the so-called luck egalitarians seek a theory of distributive justice that caters to responsibility. What's distributive justice? It's the question of how to distribute the benefits and burdens of social cooperation. And what is it to make that distribution sensitive to responsibility? Well, it's to ensure that how those benefits and burdens are allocated is sensitive to what people are responsible for, reflects what they're responsible for and the choices that they make and that it doesn't reflect what's a matter of luck, so something like the position of birth. So that's very brief. We're going to come back to luck like egalitarianism shortly. But I'm claiming that it has this role in contemporary political philosophy and in contemporary political debate. So what I'm going to do in this lecture is examine what it is that makes making justice, just these questions of distribution, sensitive to responsibility, what makes that attractive. And what does that mean for how we should do so? And so what I'm first going to do is examine what I think is attractive about catering to responsibility. Then I'm going to describe a dominant form of political philosophy that has tried to capture responsibility. Third, I'm going to say that actually it's failed to do that, because it's failed to track the very reasons we should have cared about responsibility in the first place. And then very briefly at the end, I'm going to gesture towards the way I think we should go. So, what are the many attractions of responsibility? So I think there is something desirable or even necessary about making distributive justice, questions of who gets what, sensitive to responsibility. So I want to ask the room now, at this point, who agrees with that intuition? That thought that responsibility is something we should consider when we're thinking about who bears what benefits and burdens, say in health or in welfare. Hands up for me. Okay, I'd call that the majority. Anyone strongly against? Okay, so pretty much we all think what I'm claiming we should think, right? That there's something desirable about catering to responsibility. So I really want to hear shortly whether you think I've captured the reason that you put your hand up to that, okay? So here are my four reasons, and they're not strictly mine. They they exist in the literature in various places when people are talking about responsibility, but I want to bring them all out together and use them to assess then the theory that most people offer when they talk about responsibility. So here they are. The first is fairness. Now this is what you've got illustrated on your handout. Okay? Here's the story that G.A. Cohen gives us about why you should be, have a theory of justice sensitive to responsibility. It's the example of the ant and the grasshopper. Okay? So the ant gathers food all summer, carefully, so that he has a store for the winter. And the grasshopper spends the whole summer singing and dancing. Winter comes, and the grasshopper has no food, and the ant has lots. So the grasshopper, starving, goes to the ant and says, can I have some of your food? I'm starving. And the ant says, no. You should have been less lazy and feckless all summer, and you should just dance all winter, just like you did all summer. I don't owe you anything. Strangely enough, because that parable is at least questionable in its outcomes, that's used to get this theory of making justice and responsibility. It's one of its motivations, right? This idea of fairness it is unfair if I have to bear the costs of someone else's imprudent decisions. It's unfair if I'm like the ant, I'm a hard-working taxpayer, and I have to bear the costs of someone's choice not to work hard, to make silly choices or to make bad choices about their health, these kinds of things. That's unfair. There's the thought. So where does this come in? I've mentioned smokers. Now, what's interesting about smoking, as an example, is many people think that actually the healthcare costs of a smoker are less than someone who doesn't smoke. So, in fact, we're not bearing extra costs because some people smoke. Because they die sooner, so they're cheaper in terms of pension. Now, that's contested. I'm not going to go into whether that's true or not. But it looks like lots of us still think that if you make imprudent health choices, somehow that should disqualify you from being having the same entitlement to health. So to try and get that intuition off the ground, you might think, you know, suppose you have a lung transplant, you can give it to a smoker or a non-smoker. Lots of people seem to think we you give it to the non-smoker. Here's another interesting case, again relating to smoking, and that suggests it's the imprudence we object to. Smoking. Here's another one. Some people object to the following policies. Giving people who are pregnant and smoke incentives, monetary incentives, so that they stop smoking while they're pregnant. Some people have objected that that amounts to rewarding an imprudent choice, and that should not be allowed. So this again is this idea of fairness. Right? It's unfair if we reward those who are imprudent, or if... They benefit when we've been so prudent and sensible, is the claim. Here's another value that I think. The value of choosing. I think this is also going on when we say that catering to responsibility is desirable. So to see why this might matter, consider the opposite. Consider what it would actually be like to be a citizen within a society where none of the the position that you end up to is a result of the choices you've made. The government comes in and corrects for every choice you make. That doesn't look very attractive. So Scanlon's given us two ways of understanding what is valuable about choosing. And they're the following. So the first is the representative value of choosing. That I want to see features of myself manifested in my actions and my environment. I want to make that kind of impact on the world. And the second is an instrumental value. I'm just best at choosing for myself. Right? So if I go to a restaurant and my friend orders for me, it's very unlikely they'll choose as well as I would have chosen. That's the claim. Here's a third value that I think. Respect. So what's going on here? Well, I think being treated as a chooser or a responsible agent is a form of being respected. So perhaps to make that a bit clearer, let's think about the opposite. Think about not being held responsible. something that you've done. It looks like oftentimes that does amount to a form of disrespect. So why do I say that? Well, we're treating you a bit like a child, right? You do something bad and we're like, oh, you know what, they can just be excused because they weren't really a full agent in some way. We're treating you as not having the standing of a full moral agent. Well, that's my claim. Now, it's not always disrespectful to hold people not responsible. So if something is in no way your fault, and I don't hold you responsible, that's fine, right? That's obviously not a form of disrespect. But I think it is a form of disrespect not to hold you responsible. If it's either for a very important kind of choice, so if I don't hold you as a responsible agent, able to choose things like whether you should have children or what career you do, then I disrespect you. And if it forms what I call a globalising explanation, so if I don't hold you responsible... Because I put you in a group that I don't hold responsible. So I'm thinking here of some of the discourse surrounding health choices and class. So some people think there's something disrespectful in claiming something like poor people can't be held responsible for any of the unhealthy lifestyle choices they make. It's open for debate at least, but I'm suggesting that actually if we treat people who don't have as much money as others, is unable to make responsible choices, at least sometimes that can be quite disrespectful. And you can disagree with me. Okay, final reason that I think there is, and if any of you aren't satisfied by any of the reasons I've given you for why responsibility is attractive, shortly you have your moment to tell me what yours is. That's the instrumental reason. Why is it good to hold people responsible? Well, because it can change their behaviour. So it can either change the behaviour of that individual... So suppose you are a smoker and you discover that you'll have to bear the healthcare costs of your choice, you might cease to be a smoker, right, because you know that that's just going to be too expensive. Or it might encourage others to behave differently. So I won't take up smoking because I know how costly that habit is. Or you might think it motivates people to find employment if we hold them responsible for doing so. So... Is anyone not satisfied by the reasons I've given for why responsibility is attractive? Nearly all of you think it is attractive. So does anyone have a reason other than those I've given? I would really like to hear it.
2: Yes? You don't seem to distinguish between holding someone responsible for something, which to me seems to come down to a clear understanding of somebody's role or somebody's, you know, whatever, you know, calling... Um, and, and being responsible for something. So, th- 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 you know, I mean, I can take responsibility for myself, but then to demand the same view is, is, is an extra step, and you don't seem to make that distinction.
1: Ah, oh, so that's interesting. So, so, there's two ways of taking what you said, right? So, one is that I actually don't hold a being versus holding responsible distinction at all, in terms of I don't think there's a difference. So why don't I think there's a difference? I think all there is is the practice. I don't think there's some metaphysical fact of the matter about whether you're responsible or not. There's just ways of us holding each other responsible in society. Now that doesn't fully answer your question, right? Because it might be that I think you're responsible but I don't say it to you because that would be in some way bad because it would have other effects. That's true. But I'm still holding you responsible, I'm just not verbalising it. So that sort of dances around your question a
2: well, a doctor would have certain responsibilities towards a patient. Yep. But a patient would not have the same responsibilities to a fellow patient. So it very much depends on who I am, you know, yep. like what, what I can demand or not demand. of other You don't seem to make that distinction. I think that's quite odd.
1: Okay, yeah, so I accept the distinction. That's a good one, right? So what we're responsible for definitely depends on the role that we have within society. I guess here I'm really talking about what citizens are responsible for. so are we responsible for the kind of healthcare choices that we make, a citizen rather than any of the other roles we might have are we responsible (coughs) to find jobs if there are jobs, or not so those are the kinds of questions, I guess your role as citizens is the one that is my concern for this lecture does anyone have a reason why responsibility is attractive that they want to offer me yes? it's
3: better than non-responsibility
1: it's better than non-responsibility, in what sense?
3: Well, I mean, if you take the Royal Bank of Scotland case today, I mean, are taxpayers being held responsible for the failures of people within the organisation.
1: Absolutely. So is this is some kind of fairness, right? It's unfair if, if... it's fair? I think it sounds a little bit like it. Maybe, um, it sounds like it, but
3: why should we help people non-responsible? It's a negative, isn't
1: it? Yep, yeah, absolutely. So I think that's definitely a good one, right? Where we put the responsibility in the society, I think, is crucial. Yes? Oh Free will. Free will, so, so it matters because we should. We have free will, so rightfully well so. to execute
4: it. your free will and not
1: be selective about it. Excellent. So I'm going to put that in my value of choosing. Sorry. You might disagree, but I think that's excellent. Um, but a kind of more metaphysically full on version of my value of choosing by the sounds of it. Yes?
3: Um, you, you, you could, choosing seems to be largely a delusion if you follow determinist ideologies. And in place of choosing, I would rather talk about volunteering and intention.
1: Excellent. So I'm totally with you on this determinism issue, and it's going to come up again very shortly. So when I say choosing, I think it's irrelevant whether you really choose. What matters is whether you feel you choose. So I'm going to come back to that, but that's a good point. I think when I say value of choosing, I really mean it just on that I feel like I choose, and that has value to me. It doesn't matter if actually you could have totally predicted what I'd do knowing everything about the universe. That's fine. It can still be valuable for me feeling like I'm a chooser, right? Yes?
4: Um, I'm just wondering whether the term responsibility has got something in, built into it already. So when you're talking about responsibility, you're talking presumably about to others, the citizens. Um, but you could just be responsible to yourself. So, as a banker, you might have taken quite a responsible decision in terms of your career, but not in terms of everybody else. So, I just wonder whether the term itself needs a little bit more unpacking.
1: It, it completely depends on the context. Excellent. That, that's great. That's very much like the role agreement, right? So, I'm going to say. So, maybe I should say again. You know, I'm talking about. You know, when we're we distributing benefits and burdens to social corporations, so when we're standing as in- citizens. What do we owe to one another? I'll take one final point. Was there a point there? I am just going to say, does morality all of this? Yes, I think it does. I think responsibility is a moral practice. I think we have a whole set of moral values that mean that we do it. And I think that that's something political philosophers should be respecting. So I'm going to describe how I think that as the lecture continues. Right, so what am I going to do next? Well, I'm going to look at luck egalitarianism in a little bit more detail, and then I'm going to argue that those reasons I said that catering to responsibility was attractive at all, well, those are reasons that the current way that political philosophers, in the most part, are thinking about responsibility. These luck egalitarians, they haven't got why it is attractive in the first place. Okay, so here's luck egalitarianism, this position that political philosophers talk about roughly defined, I'm sorry for any of you who are familiar with the Lucky of literature, there is a lot of complexity I'm skimming over here, but it's the position most commonly associated with making justice sensitive to responsibility. This is most often what we mean. And what it does is it seeks to distinguish outcomes for which people are responsible from outcomes that are the result of just brute luck, mere luck, happenstance. And it says insofar as inequalities are the result of brute luck, we should correct for them. So we should Seek to alleviate harm that comes to someone through no fault of their own, or people who end up in bad positions where that's not a result of anything they've chosen. Just a matter of sheer luck. So, as I said, this is very simplistic understanding of luck egalitarianism. It's not a complete description. But I think that what does unify all of the accounts of luck egalitarianism are the following two features. One... It's responsibility sensitive. What does that mean? Well, the who works hard all summer and the lazy grasshopper, well, they should have different outcomes at the end of the summer, right? So it is sensitive to the kinds of choices that we make. And also they seek to neutralise luck. They seek to remove the effects of luck on how our life goes. So if you're the victim of a natural catastrophe, we should correct for that. We should ensure that you don't have to bear the burdens that result from So being in the path of a flood. Okay, here's what D.A. Cohen thinks about this. So he thinks this is an absolutely great move for those of us who are interested in equality to make. So a common criticism of those perhaps who like to think of themselves as valuing equality (coughs) is that they are insufficiently sensitive to responsibility, right? So people who value equality, it's thought, well, they don't really make a difference between those who try really hard and those who don't. They just pan to the lowest common denominator. We'll end up in a society full of, you know, really lazy people just living off the state. This is the kind of line that you get about socialism, right? Well, Gia Cohen says, no, no, it's okay, because what we can do is we can steal those ideas of responsibility and choice from the right, and we can make them left-wing. So it's all good. We can be egalitarians who pay to responsibility. Why can they do this? Well, my answer is because they subvert the very notions of responsibility and choice that they're seeking to incorporate into their theories. They don't put in what the Daily Mail means by responsibility and choice. They change it. And I think it's in changing it that they fall down and fail to capture why it is that responsibility mattered in the first place. So that's what the rest of this lecture is going to be about. So what I'm about to say about how egalitarians think about responsibility and choice doesn't accommodate all of them. So in particular, for those of you familiar with this stuff, I'm not talking about Tworkin and I'm not talking about Roma. So in case you're familiar with those, we're going to bracket those. I think they've got other problems. I'm going to focus on a kind of mainstream view propounded by someone like G.A. Cohen or Arneson, Uh, Carl Knight, a set of people. This is the one I'm focusing on. So what's wrong with it? Well, here's its view on responsibility and choice. Here's how it goes. One assumption, responsibility is something like, or has, as a condition, control. What does that mean? I'm responsible for those actions or choices that I'm in control of, and not those I'm not in control of. That sounds pretty attractive, right? If I'm not in control of some choice I make, it seems strange to hold me responsible for it. Now, they mean a whole range of things potentially by that idea of control. They can mean that the choices I make are responsive to reasons in the right kind of way, so if you gave me a good reason otherwise, I wouldn't have acted in that way. Or it can mean that I could have done otherwise. That's another way of thinking about control from moral literature. Doesn't matter too much for the purposes of this lecture. Versus this lecture, I just need this idea of control. You can spell it out any way you like if you're familiar with the moral literature. So, what undermines control? Well, luck. Factors of luck. Right? They're things you're not in control of. That's just definitional, almost. What do I mean, well, luck in your circumstance? So they talk about the luck of being born to a rich family instead of a poor family. or well, the luck of being born in one part of the world that's wealthy rather than in a part of the world that isn't. And they also mean constitutive luck. What do they mean by this? Luck in the way that you are. So insofar as the way that you are isn't a result of choices you make, then you shouldn't be held responsible for it. So overall, this view is eradicate luck. If you don't have luck, then you have responsibility. Sorry, good, Good. What was that called? Sorry, constitutive. Constitutive luck. So luck in the way one is constituted um, is the claim. Right, and then assumption two, and then we're going to stop doing the dry stuff in just a moment, so bear with me, right? So there's a fixed set of conditions for holding responsibility, okay? What does that mean? Well, the very same notion of responsibility is meant to cover, say, the health domain and education and work, right? Either you're in control or you're not. It doesn't change across those different spheres. I'll come back to that in a lot more detail shortly, so... That's all good. Okay, so what's the result of that conception of responsibility? I went over very quickly, but we're going over it repeatedly. So, what's the result? Here are two examples of things that left egalitarians say that I think look nothing like the way we normally talk about responsibility. First example is talents, and the second is effort. So, here's what I claim as a general opinion about talent. And to show you it, I'm going to raise social mobility again. So I'm claiming that for many, many people, it matters that you can move from the class in which you're born. We think that the position of your birth is a matter of luck and shouldn't make a difference, or should make less of a difference than it does. We don't think the same thing about talent. So whatever role of genes and environment or the interaction of the two you want to give, right? my claim is something you're not responsible for to you being talented in a certain way. Right? So either it's because you're born with I don't know mathematical ability that gets expressed in that way because of your early environment, whatever. So whichever combination of genes and envir- environment you want. Okay. We don't think the same way about talent as we do about class. So very few people who aren't political philosophers think that if you're talented, that's not a good reason for you to do better than others. Okay. We don't think that, right? We think that if you're talented, you should do well. You should be rewarded for being talented and putting those talents to use. Luck egalitarians don't. Okay, It's luck. It's just the same as class. It's still luck. It's luck of genes or luck of early environment or luck of the kind of school you went to if you went to a private school. That stuff's responsible for you being talented. Not you. You did not choose to be talented. So the person let's say, born for the sake of simplicity, with greater mathematical talent, doesn't deserve to do better because they're mathematically talented. Any more than the child born to a rich family should do better than one who isn't. According to the lucky egalitarian, that, I claim, is absolutely not the way we normally think about talents. Social Attitude surveys support me on this. They tend to come to the conclusion that if someone is genuinely talented, they should be rewarded for being talented. Effort. This, I think, is even trickier. So, the very sort of case that I put on your handout, right, the ants and the grasshopper, we have this intuition that if you strive, if you make good choices, if you put a lot of effort in you gather all summer rather than sing all summer, well, that should affect how you end up. And if you're lazy, you should do less well. I think that's just obvious common sense for many people. That's not what a lucky egalitarian will necessarily end up saying. So why is that? Well, to a large extent, the amount of effort you exert is due to factors beyond your control. So that's more controversial, I think, maybe, than the talent case. But here's a couple of ways to try and get that claim off the ground. Why is an effort something under your control? Reason one, some psychologists think that the level of conscientiousness, which is correlated quite well to how hard-working or how much effort you put on, in can be ascertained at the age of three. So if at the age of three, you get two children and you say to them, or you know, a set of children, but let's just take two for now, say then you have a sweet now or two sweets in five minutes. The child that chooses two sweets in five minutes is likely to do better at school than the one who doesn't. Okay. And there's lots of experiments of this kind. Now I'm not going to commit to say this is absolutely necessarily the case, but there's at least some evidence that very likely how hard-working you are isn't under your control. I'm taking it that no one in this room thinks that a child under three is responsible for the way that they have turned out. Most some of you might disagree, but I think that's unlikely, right? looks like that's early environment or genetic, or probably a combination of the two. Okay, and then suppose you're raised in a family with a really strong Protestant work ethic. Okay, So you were born, or your early environment made you pretty conscientious, made you willing to defer gratification and to apply yourself and so on. And then your family was obsessed with the notion that everyone should work and should work really hard. You grow to adulthood and you work really hard. Someone else ends up at the age of three not very conscientious, grows up in a family where they don't really have that Protestant work ethic, hey, they think a balanced life is more important or something. And when they grow up, they don't work as hard. Now, you weren't in control, or at least not in full control, of how you ended up hardworking or lazy. So if you're a lucky egalitarian, really you shouldn't think that the hard working person necessarily should do better. So to give you a bit of evidence for this, there's one article called Egalitarianism and the undeserving poor by Arneson. Well, he says, look, it looks like we want to make a distinction between the deserving and the undeserving poor, right? So lots of people, the deserving poor, right, they're in that situation through no fault of their own, and we should help them. But then there are this other category of people, the type that the Daily Mail like to characterize in their articles, right, who are sitting at home playing on the PlayStation. Now, I am not committed to claiming that there are such people. I'm just saying some people think there are such people. So Anderson says, could we distinguish between the two types? And he basically says, no, there are so many reasons why they might not be in control of where they've ended up that we can't do that. So, there we have it. On talent and effort, luck egalitarians deviate to an extreme degree from how we actually ordinarily think about responsibility and who gets what. So, here's the luck egalitarian response to that. Ordinary thinking is wrong, and we should change our ways. Who finds that attractive? Well, quite a few of you. Who doesn't find that attractive? Okay, I'm going to argue that the fewer of you who put your hands up then are right, and all of you who put your hands up before are wrong, so you can see if you agree with me. Okay, so here's why we shouldn't change our ways. Here's why I don't think that's a good answer, or not strictly. And this is the problem with lack egalitarianism. So I'm going to start with a couple of of existing objections. So borrowing a guy called Matrava's terminology, it's the problems that the distinction between luck, on the one hand, things we should correct for, and responsibility on the other, something people should fare the costs of. Well, that is both too wide and too deep. Why is it too deep? Here we come back to the free will question that's already been raised. So... In the end, our control over our actions is undermined by so many factors of luck that there's nothing that we're responsible for. So you've sort of seen how that argument goes already. When I talked about talent and effort, I said, look, in the end, there's so much role for luck that we're not responsible. And so the argument is, if you you just keep going along that line, really, are you responsible for anything? Is there no luck involved undermining your control for any of your choices? It looks like always there's some factor of luck. There's the luck of being in that situation to make that choice in the first place. There's the luck of how you were raised, the luck of your genes, if you believe in some kind of genetic determinist type view. So it's a version of the free will problem, basically, which I'm sure lots of you are familiar with. Is there anything we're responsible for? And it looks like luck egalitarians suffer from that, too. Okay, distinction is too wide distinction between luck and responsibility. What does that mean? Well, it means it applies in places it shouldn't. So we end up distinguishing distinguishing between luck and responsibility in cases where it just has no place. So what kinds of places are these? Now, there is one, one person who talks about responsibility in political philosophy. And he says, look, suppose there aren't very many good marriage partners in a society. Okay. Well, it's probably in large part a matter of luck that you manage to find one. And someone else will be single and alone for the rest of their lives. So the state should compensate you. It should take some resources from those who happily find a marriage partner and give them to someone who doesn't to make up for it. Now, some people think that is not a good place for us to be applying these notions of responsibility so co-citizens. Here's another example from Elizabeth Anderson. The ugly person. Let us suppose that the ugly person's life tends to go less well. They're less likely to get hired for a job. They're less likely to, I think this is probably not true, form a successful relationship. But there's evidence for the job one, at least. But the thought is, look, there's lots of ways that if you're really ugly, your life may not go as well. Perhaps children look at you in the street funny or something. Anderson asks us to imagine what a luck egalitarian state would do. And she says, well, it would write to the ugly person saying, we're very sorry you're so ugly. Your life goes less well than everyone who isn't ugly. So here is some cash to improve your level of well-being. Because you shouldn't be held responsible for that. So we need to correct for any inequalities as a result. That doesn't look really like what we should be doing. So there's the idea it's too wide. Okay, now, lucky egalitarians don't tend to think either of these are fatal. Okay? They think these objections are there, but we can get round. Here's how they think we can. Either you bite the bullet, so you just say, yes, yes, we should write to the ugly person probably less disrespectfully, right? But we should give them some cash, right? Their lives are going less well through something that is no fault of their own, and I'm happy just to bite the bullet on that. And you see exactly the same thing happening in the case of the free will or or death problem, right? They say, fine, everything's a matter of luck. Don't hold people responsible for anything. Correct all inequalities. No one should end up anywhere different to anyone else. There's option one, option two, they appeal to some other part of their theory or other value to do the work for them. I say, hey, not wanting to really violate someone's self respect will stop us sending the letter to the ugly person. But we should, right? Justice says we should, we're just not going to. So, how satisfying you find that, again, I leave for you to decide. But here's why I told you those objections it's not to try and send up the lucky egalitarian's responses. But instead, to say that they illustrate what I think is the real problem with luck egalitarianism. And that's that it fails to capture the reasons responsibility was ever valuable in the first place. So I'm returning to those four values that most of you have got in front of you, and then take them each in turn. Let's look at the instrumental value of holding responsible. So, that, recall. It was to do with the possibility of changing behaviour through holding responsible. Well, luck egalitarians and their distinction, that's not going to track which behaviours we want to encourage or those we want to discourage. It's too wide and it's too deep, that distinction. So, what I mean is there's going to be too many ways that luck comes into the things we want to change people's behaviour regarding. So, suppose we want to change smoking behaviour. Well, smoking rates are strongly correlated to socioeconomic background. So it might be that we say if you smoke and you're in a certain class, you're not really responsible. Right? It's luck that you ended up in that class that tends to smoke and there's lots of reasons why that wasn't fully your decision or it's not something we should fully hold you responsible for. That's not going to do much good in changing the behaviour of the smoker, is it? Or suppose we take the imprudent person who makes really bad decisions all the time and we say, well, they were raised that way so we should keep fishing them out whenever they make an imprudent choice. That may not be a very good way of changing their behaviour. So it's unclear to me that that luck egalitarian distinction tracks this instrumental value that I think responsibility has. Okay, I'm going to do the same trick on every single one of the three remaining values and see whether you agree where I've defeated them all. Value of choice, so it's valuable to be treated as a chooser. Well, luck egalitarians aren't going to track what it's valuable to be treated as a chooser for. Why is that? Well, it won't track the choices we find valuable to make for ourselves. It won't call all of those things choices. It will call a lot of them brute luck. And so it won't capture the very reasons we thought choice was valuable in the first place. So, consider the depth problem, right? This is there's too many factors of luck, so we're not really responsible. So, I don't know, suppose I really like being imprudent. And every time I make a really silly decision, the state keeps correcting for it, because it's a lucky egalitarian state, and it turns out that I was raised to be really imprudent. It might be that I resent that, right? That I want my that situation in life to represent me as an imprudent person who likes making these really stupid choices. Not sure about that, but I think certainly it's the case that we're not going to divide up the world in the way that you might have thought. We're not going to say hold people responsible for valuable and important choices that they make because they're valuable and important to them. We're going to say, was it a matter of luck? Are they really in control? And I'm suggesting that the two categories won't overlap very well. Okay. Alright, the value of respect. Being treated as a chooser or a responsible agent is good because the state respects you. Well, we've already the depth problem and the width problem again are a problem. Right? We're not going to be treated as responsible when we should be, when that would be respectful, is my claim. So I think that it's potentially disrespectful to say to the person who works very hard because they've internalised the values of their parents and happen to be born conscientious, you're not really responsible for being so hard working. You think it's a really important part of your identity, but we've determined that really in large part, that's a matter of luck. So you shouldn't do any better because you're hardworking, right? Because you're not really responsible for that. Perhaps that's a form of disrespect. Okay, you might or might not buy that. I mean, you can also have the width problem for this value of respect, right? That's exactly what Anderson's case of the ugly person was meant to illustrate, right? Lucky egalitarians just get it wrong about when it's respectful to hold people responsible and when it's disrespectful not to hold them responsible, okay? So the, the Anderson problem comes in again. All right, I'm going to be one of the tricky case, right? I take it that those cases, you can probably see the line of reasoning. It was the same in each case, right? That we have this reason to think that responsibility practices are valuable, and I gave you a set of them, right? Because they change people's behaviour, because it respects people to hold them responsible, or because it's important to see that your choices make a difference in your life. And I said, none of that's really got anything to do with whether you had real control, such that there are no factors of luck in your choice. So why do you think the two sets will converge so neatly? I don't think they will. Fairness is difficult. So... Here's the case for why they don't capture fairness, these lucky egalitarians. You've already really been given it. You're not going to track cases like the ant and grasshopper. Or the strider and the lazy person, that really this example is meant to be illustrating. Why is that? Well, I mean, it's kind of in ants' natures to go and toil all summer and to store lots of grain. And you might think it's kind of in the nature of grasshopper not to. And likewise, there might be reasons to think that people aren't responsible for whether they're strivers or lazy. So we're not going to track that. And my claim is if we don't track that, it doesn't look like we capture something that's fair, right? If you bought the intuition that actually if you are really lazy, you should do worse than someone who's really hardworking, lucky egalitarians aren't going to give you that. So what's a lucky egalitarian going to say to me? They're going to say... Fairness means tracking what people are really responsible for. Okay. It's just straightforwardly unfair if I hold you responsible for something that's just a matter of luck, right? So it is just straightforwardly unfair to say the grasshopper should be held responsible. They're a grasshopper, right? They shouldn't be held responsible for the fact they behaved like a grasshopper. And you'd say the same thing about the person you thought was kind of chronically lazy as a result of their poor upbringing. It's not okay. It's unfair to hold them responsible for that. Okay, I don't agree with that. I think you lose the value of fairness if you try and take that as your option. So why do you lose the value of fairness? Because you end up with a set of intuitions that you want to claim you should have that are so far removed from what we normally think of as fair. What do I mean? Well... Go back to the prudent and the imprudent case. So, here let's take the mother who, sorry, the pregnant woman who never smoked feels it's really unfair that the pregnant woman who smokes gets incentives to take them off it. Why? We're we're rewarding them for imprudent behaviour. My suggestion is that intuition about fairness doesn't change if we tell the mother who's never smoked, hey, you know, there's reasons to do with their background that they were more likely to. You know, it's not fully in their control that they're doing this. They might turn around to us and say, it's still rewarding imprudent behaviour. It's still really unfair that you're not rewarding me for being prudent. And here's another example, right? So suppose someone's mildly workaholic, okay? So they just love spending sort of 10-hour days at their desk. And that just does it for them, right? And the reason for that is some combination of strange genes and their upbringing, right? They've been encouraged to always think this way. Maybe they were rewarded in certain ways as children for certain behaviours. And then we have a person who we can assume is naturally lazy. This really is their default. right? I still think it's okay if the mild workaholic does better than the natural lazy person. I think it's fair. And so I think that really it's got very little to do with whether someone's in full control of their choice whether we should hold them responsible. I don't think that's what fairness tells us. I think fairness tells us it should make a difference if you're prudent or imprudent, a workaholic or naturally lazy. So, here's my suggestion as to why I think fairness is on my side and not on the side of the luck egalitarians. So, it's prudence that really gets these ideas about fairness off the ground, and not, in fact, responsibility. Not responsibility is control. Okay. That's what I think is going on. So what do I mean? I think that we think it's fair that the prudent do better than the imprudent. And I don't think we really care why they're that way. Now, one caveat. I think we sometimes care why they're that way. So if it's the case that someone has, say... Sufficient, you know, they're sufficiently mentally unwell that it compromises their capacity to choose at all, and so they make really reckless decisions as a product of their mental illness, <coughs> then obviously we care that they're not in control of what they've done. Right? It doesn't look like we want to say it's fair that they suffer the consequences of their imprudent choice. But my claim is that's really an outlier. Right? We don't think the same way about the you know, naturally lazy person or the grasshopper. Or well, the person whose choice to smoke is slightly influenced by their class. Okay, there's my claim. So, I don't think like egalitarians have captured what's significant about catering to responsibility. So what should we do? We should try a different approach. Here's what I think the approach should look like. I don't think you should start from asking what are people really responsible for? What are they in control of? And then allocating the benefits and burdens of society accordingly. I think you should start from the values, those four values I gave you. And you should say, these things make responsibility practices valuable or important. And it's not the case that we should just be asking, what's left to choice once we've eradicated all the possible elements of luck? I think we should instead be saying it's important to in some way cater to prudence because that's fair in our conception of responsibility. And it's important that we have certain responsibility practices that have instrumental value because that will reduce the costs in our society. And it's important that we hold people responsible for certain of their choices because it it shows that the state respects them as a full moral agent. And because it's valuable to them if how their life goes depends on what they've chosen. So that's what we should do instead. Don't do what lots of the luck egalitarians do, and think that because we think responsibility matters, the way to go is to say, what are we really in control of? And then plug that in. Look at why you cared about responsibility in the first place. Okay, and there's one final comment about how I think we should do things differently. So currently... Luck egalitarians offer a pretty unified account. What do I mean by that? Well, they have one notion of control that they apply across different cases where we assess the outcomes and whether someone's responsible or not. And those same factors of luck are introduced under my control. Right? Was it genes? Was it environment? Etc. I don't think we should. I think in different spheres, to so say in different areas of welfare, well, then there are different values at play in holding responsible. Sometimes we're caring about prudence and fairness. Sometimes we're caring about instrumental benefits. Sometimes we're caring about choices being reflected and how people end up. And sometimes we care about respect. So don't expect the same kinds of factors to always be relevant. Sometimes we're going to care about environment and genes. Sometimes we're not. It's going to depend on why we think we want to hold people responsible. So... Here's the conclusion of this lecture. There's something attractive about catering to responsibility in a theory of justice. Nearly all of you agreed with me, right, that it should make some difference to how we end up what we're responsible for. But I'm saying if we're going to do it, if we're going to make justice sensitive to responsibility, we better capture the reasons responsibility matters. better capture the instrumental value, the value of respect, of choosing and of fairness. And I'm claiming that the dominant version of luck egalitarianism just doesn't. I told you what I think that responsibility-sensitive egalitarianism might look like. It's going to look fragmented, it's going to be led by those values. And I'm saying that we shouldn't seek to eradicate luck. That doesn't get us the reasons that responsibility is valuable. And finally, to wrap it up, I'm going to briefly look at what I think about welfare policy in this context. So, I open the lecture by discussing the case of health, whether we should hold people responsible for their unhealthy lifestyle choices, and the case of unemployment benefit. And I also suggested to you the case of the ant and the grasshopper, right, that if you work hard, you should do better. Well, if you want to know whether to introduce those policies to cater to responsibility, first you've got to get really clear why it was that that kind of holding responsible mattered. And only then can you figure out what, what are the relevant excusing factors, right? what lets people off the hook, so what means that we don't hold them responsible for their unhealthy lifestyle choices. So you should ask, were you aiming at respect, valuing the chooser, mm. instrumental reasons, or fairness? And then address the relevance of responsibility. After you've done that, after you've said, OK, look, what I want to do in unhealthy lifestyle cases is I really want to ensure that people are encouraged to make prudent decisions. Okay. But in the case of um, tax policies on those who are hard workers, actually, I think it's important that we respect people's level of effort or something. Then you can answer the question as to how we should hold people responsible. So I don't think we should engage in the kinds of debates that papers like The Guardian and Daily Mail tend to. Okay, so why do I think that? Well, if you look at those two newspapers, what they tend to do is engage in what I think are pseudo-factual debates. What do I mean by that? Well, The Daily Mail declares that someone is definitely responsible for something, say, rioting, and then The Guardian comes along and says, no, they're not. Look at all the socioeconomic conditions that it take. That excuses them. And then the Daily Mail says, no, they're still responsible, that's all lies, you know, that's not right science, that's not the right way to go. Okay? Instead you should just be upfront about what you value. And it looks like the two sets of values of those two newspapers are very different. So they're not really having a factual disagreement. It's not really the case that the Daily Mail reader thinks socioeconomic diff- uh, explanations have no weight or no force so they think that that doesn't matter when it comes to having people responsible. So I think we should start there. Thank you very much, everyone. <laughs> well,
0: thank you very much. I think that was very uh, thought-provoking, so I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions now. Um, yeah, let's
5: start back with me. I really enjoyed that lecture. I'd like to suggest that we haven't really discussed the middle way in which the people who have been fortunate to have the talent and to have the motivation and the hard work should actually be taught from an early age to think how lucky they are. And actually the very fact of being intelligent, beautiful, hardworking, should be to some extent a itself. Like. And they themselves have more responsibility because of it.
1: I think that's fair. I think that's an excellent response, right? I think that's absolutely the response that in fact, a factor like egalitarians should make. They should say to me, no, we should really be changing, as you're kind of describing, right? The social ethos, right? What we think. About I'm not that, I think we do have a responsibility to pay for the pregnant not to smoke, not for her kids' sake,
5: but of course to try to make you qualitative by the offspring. Maybe that would also mean that you would launch public schools to try to make equality opportunity.
1: Okay, so equality of opportunity. So that definitely wasn't in my talk, and perhaps shouldn't be, but I completely conceded it. I think it's very interesting, this idea, that we might say, actually, people who are talented or hardworking should think of themselves very differently and not demand rewards. I don't know how plausible that is, and I also don't know how desirable it is in some ways. So maybe I'm going to sit on the fence a little bit. Um... Yeah, I'm going
5: to answer that that's very interesting and I will think about it. Let me move on to more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between getting on and welfare? Uh, most people would expect that hard-working people are going to get on, but welfare is a different, different subject. Absolutely. And I'm not sure why the grasshopper wasn't paid for singing and dancing. (laughs) I'm putting a lot more effort into (laughs) singing and dancing. and and maybe the answer being entertained and uh, such like. And I'm a little bit worried that mental health is immediately exempted from responsibility. A lot of welfare is around mental health. Okay, to so the extent that you have to, quoting other people, you have to say how bad you feel, you have to talk up your problems, you have to claim to not be responsible to get even a place to live, which is basic, and I'm a bit inclined to think of welfare in terms of the basic physical yeah. necessities of life that people Thank
1: you, a lot of interesting thoughts there. Can I... So, i stop you there and you can come back if you've got another one, otherwise, I'm going to forget what you said in the first place. Right? So, I think I would absolutely agree with you. The mental health case and questions about what this sounds like assessments for those who have disabilities of various kinds. I think the current way that we do assessments of disabilities is incredibly disrespectful, actually, and incredibly problematic. Um, What I meant to do by bringing in that case is say, to acknowledge that sometimes at least we do care whether someone's in control of their behaviour. Now here I'm obviously not claiming that everyone with any kind of mental health issue is not in control, right? That's absolutely not what I meant to imply. But I'm saying that there does look like there's some cases where, you know, we want to stop people, say, from, you know, performing certain actions on themselves because we take it they're not in their right minds at that time. So that's all I meant to indicate, that there is some role for control, we sometimes care about that, but just not often, but... I'm absolutely with you on the welfare point. On the ant and grasshopper, so I put it on the handout because I think it's a really strange parable, actually, right? So most people, when they hear it, are like, that ant is horrible, right? The ant absolutely should have given something to the grasshopper. They shouldn't let them starve, or perhaps the grasshopper should have been paid for the beautiful music they performed. I think that's possible. I put it on for that reason, right? Because I think there's something uncomfortable there. Um, Though I know there was a third point that I've lost track of. (laughs)
5: <laughs> I don't think there was, but just another little worry on the mental health side is with physical health we're, we recognise that there are factors that, that contribute and on that whole issue I think it's so difficult to draw a line, I think it's best left. I don't know where any line could be drawn on that. But uh, if there are also, which I think there are, attitudes which contribute, which play the same role in mental health, then all the attitudes that contribute to mental, whatever, are being are being promoted by hmm. the way the welfare system hmm. works. That's that's sort of So I guess I'm
1: kind of in agreement with. You. I think that the way the welfare system works at the moment, particularly around disability, is completely unacceptable. But what I'm pleased with is you're kind of giving a normative argument in some ways why, right, like a value argument, right, that it's not a case to treat people like these, to aggravate these attitudes. I'm with you. I just think this is how we should be thinking about welfare, not actually being that interested in whether people are really in control of the situation they're in, but looking at other factors. And I remembered what my final point was. You said, you like, know, I'm talking about welfare, and then I'm talking about hard-working people, and they seem like really different cases. So you're right, they are really different cases. But they're both issues of how to distribute the benefits and burdens of social cooperation. So it's a question of who bears what cost. So we're saying, right, when we give someone unemployment benefit, we're saying you shouldn't have to bear the cost of being unemployed. That's kind of, that's, that's what it means, right? We're distributing the burdens in a certain way. And when we say a hardworking person should do better and be taxed less, then again we're saying they should bear more of the benefits. So it's within this sphere of asking who gets what. But thank you for the comments. They were great. Cool.
0: Okay,
2: I'm seeing lots of ants. Um, let's take you, you, and you. Because I saw you for a while, and then we'll go to the next one. Yeah. Um, I, I, I sort of, I had increasingly more difficulties with the uh, grasshopper as well. It seems to mask <laughs> the fact that I don't know how you see this. Will this grasshopper die as a result of not getting the food? In other words, will all ants act in the same way? So wouldn't it be responsible then for the ad to just kill the grasshopper to avoid a slow <laughs> death? <laughs> so that's. Um, I'm going to yeah, offer yeah, that modified version of
1: the story I, next
2: time I round. I think. <laughs> you know, that might be well, So we may well shoot our musicians and dancers. You know, then we get them. You know, um, but the, the, if you take the example of somebody, like say somebody my age drowning in the, in a lake, um, and, uh, and 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 I, I see this person drown. Now. In one life, I happen to be a competent swimmer, and I will have a set of responsibilities because I could just jump in and kind of flight to save this person's life. In another life, I unfortunately never learned to swim either. Does this now mean that I have got no responsibility at all, or should I still shout help, help, and try to get somebody? In other words, it's not necessarily as black and white of, can I help myself, or whatever, so there may well be an option that I have, you know, like an obligation to alert others to help. Um... Also, there's this kind of in-between case where it may not be a calm lake, but it might be a dangerous bay, and there might be the the, the risk of me going in that I die as well, (laughs) even though I can swim. So how do I then decide whether I should actually put my own life at risk by trying to save another life? It's like with the ants. Well, if they give some of their food to that grasshopper, will that mean that towards the end of winter or early spring they will start to starve and die themselves? Or do they have enough excess food so that it's... So I think all of these kinds of questions are sort of getting lost in your kind of in your analogy. It makes the very kind of reductionist argument, which seems kind of okay in the classroom and in the theory, but very, very dangerous. It sounds so Ian David Smith when you apply it. Um, oh, no, but, I'm terribly
1: offended. Okay, <laughs> I'm bracketing that, that,
2: that moment. Because so, it is a disturbing, poor argument. And of course, Ian Duncan Smith has made this very forcefully in his, in his kind of welfare. And it's exactly that, and I'm very worried about about that. And I don't know how you actually guard against that kind of uh, possible abuse or, or that, that way of taking it.
1: So I think that's a really interesting comment. So uh, a guy called Joe Wolf, he's written about the lucky egalitarians and he said this is an incredibly irresponsible political theory. Why is that? It kind of legitimates these horrible welfare policies, right? Where we're really disrespectful towards those who are unemployed or have disabilities because we require that they justify why they need such help, right? And we require them to, as you were putting it, play up what's wrong with them and sort of compound the social attitudes surrounding disability. So you're absolutely right. It can sound really bad. What I would say in my defence, if you like, in my, why I think that I would potentially do a little bit better, although some of your criticism may hold, is I absolutely think the details matter. So because I don't think it's just a question of whether you're in control or not, but instead looking at the details of the practice and what kinds of values it undermines or promotes, I hope to avoid doing that. Or I hope that this would be better at least than what the luck egalitarians are saying. Because I think Joe Wolfe is absolutely right. I think it's a very dangerous doctrine to say, only correct for inequalities for a matter of luck. Right? Looks to me like that can look really nasty when we implement it. So hopefully if we look more carefully at the practice and the values, we can do better. In terms of your starving case, I mean, I don't know what the original writer of the story of the Ants and the Grasshopper meant. I think we're meant to assume that the ant would survive, right? But they let the grasshopper die, and they could have not done that. Um... In terms of your drowning point, I'm going to bracket off, this is a kind of duty of rescue case, right? So the question is, you know, if it's the case that I risk my life, do I still have to rescue? But the same goes for the grasshopper, well, no,
2: it's a rescue case as well. I mean, think about the developing world and we can just let them starve.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So those are rescue cases. And so I think they're actually a bit different, right? I think there it's our common humanity should motivate us to have some kind of humanitarian interest. I don't think responsibility comes into play, at least in terms of interest in whether people in a terrible famine are responsible. That doesn't look like it's relevant at all, right? Responsibility doesn't always matter. Does that slightly satisfy? Partially, at least. Let me try some other questions. You can come back if we get to yeah. the queue. I think you were next. Yeah, thanks for what I Um So one of the problems you seem to have of the sharing is, is this kind of
6: invasive anthropology of it. And um, to be constant at people's lives through
7: a kind of microscope, and another kind of related
6: problem, I guess, is like in the other yeah. person case, is quite insulting to people if you need compensation. I wonder if those going to be alleviated if uh, it becomes kind of optional or voluntary whether or not you opt in for this kind of system of justice, the same way that some people on principle refuse to have benefit, for example. You could, you could have it, well, here's your option. You can have it uh, if, you, if you want, because you know, we, we know, I mean, just. By the way you set up the case, it has to be you some knowledge of, uh, or at least some potential knowledge of uh, uh, kind of bad luck. But if you find it insulting and disrespectful, then you don't have to have our conversation, but it's there on the table anyway.
1: So this is a kind of, it's okay if we make welfare systems kind of really invasive, because you could have just not chosen to have welfare. Is that the claim?
6: Um, I think it always touched on the last question a little bit, uh, in that you kind of uh, maybe you make your own case I mean, if, if, you, if you feel like you've suffered some bad luck And you make your own case to the relative You know, whatever, admin body But uh, otherwise, if you feel like that would be insulting to, to get that kind of charity, as you might see it As opposed to an act of justice Then you can just leave it, just leave it out.
1: I guess my worry about that is that people need These benefits oftentimes, right? I mean, it's not like you can just be like, oh, it's amazing it's and disrespectful, so I'm not going to go through it. Because lots of people have to, because they're in financial dire straits. So actually, I prefer an image, in the case at least, some provision of welfare, where we say, look, as a society, we take joint responsibility to ensure that no one gets into too desperate a situation, or that if anyone becomes disabled, because many of us will at some point in our life, then we are taken care of. And so we don't ask why. We don't care if it was because you rode your motorcycle really stupidly that you've ended up in this situation or not so that's just a very different approach so I'm not sure about this opting out because I worry that people you know people need this money right it's
8: not really optional
1: in that sense
5: okay
8: yeah your question uh, yeah well again uh, with the issue sort of relating towards the well I think it's also important to address but the responsibility um, shifts also from like one generation to the other so it sort of begs the question as to sort of why were we not asking these issues regarding responsibility in areas of low unemployment and sort of high job opportunities? So I think when you're sort of looking at this responsibility now, um, again, uh, Gentleman May sort of suggesting that um, we should, um, you know, we should we should maybe opt in or opt out um, for people who don't need some benefits and things like that. But um, in terms of In terms of justice, I think it's also it's very important to look at responsibility changes uh, throughout history. I don't think that's been addressed perhaps enough.
1: Yep, I think you're absolutely right, like our notions of responsibility change over time, who's responsible for what. I think you made an interesting point too, right? That we certainly at the moment have a propensity to try and hold those who are, you know, doing badly whose lives are not going well responsible. And those who are at the top, we're not very good at holding them responsible, right? I think we have a desire to post bankers, etc. in the financial crisis, But there's not many mechanisms for holding them responsible. And we don't investigate their responsibility in the same sort of demeaning and invasive way that we do those whose lives are not going well. So both
4: points,
1: I think,
4: are
0: well made. Okay, let's so, see, uh, your question, then there's
3: one in the back here, and then one in the front. Your foot's getting here. Thank you for a very interesting lecture. I wonder to what extent of philosophers, in discussing these things, have taken into account the absolutely remarkable capabilities of Homo sapiens for deception of self-deception. I mean, we've got. We've got capabilities as a species for camouflage and nemesis uh, both aggressive and defensive, far exceed anything known in the rest of the natural world Uh, we've invented everything from creative accounting to uh, uh, burden shifting intergenerational debt I mean quite apart from the fact that we're only known species that able to cover its own tracks I mean, not even the octopus has got these capabilities. So actually, responsibility, it seems to me, is a very, very important thing in our sort of human world in a way that doesn't really apply in any other species. Just a
1: suggestion. So I absolutely agree with you. I think very much that responsibility is a kind of human moral practice that we make very important in a lot of our societies in a lot of ways, and that it is a unique and very interesting practice. So thank you.
9: Yeah. You. Yeah. On the topic of responsibility, um, I'm just interested what your view on this as in the way Africa is labelled
5: as third world when we build a one world, and
9: obviously um, the way they might be living is through what has happened previously. So um, you know.
5: Yeah,
1: absolutely. So on the matter of global justice, I'm with so this guy called Thomas Poggy. And he says, look, it's not the case that. So, OK, there we go, but it's a bit slower, sorry. So there's this guy called Singer, and he says we should think about those in countries where there are famines or starvation or kind of systematic issues that we might want to provide humanitarian aid for. We should think of them as akin to a child drowning in a pond. Right, that we have to rescue. I find that really disrespectful, and I think absolutely it misses out the reasons for it. Right, it's much more akin in these cases that we have pushed in the child. Right, and now we're like, oh, should we help? I'm not sure. Um, and I think that that's absolutely the case. So Paul Geese says, look, if you think about colonialism and the way that stuff was stolen, the genocide, and slavery. If you think about the way that we've set up unfair and unjust trade laws, things like intellectual property rights. You know, it's our fault, right? So it's not a question of fishing out the drowning child and feeling good about ourselves. That's a very disrespectful and mistaken way to see it. Does that help? So we're responsible. So there is responsibility, but it's a kind of wealthy nations are really responsible for that.
9: Yes, because the fact that um, you know um, they're labeled as third world, you know, I just find that very interesting, you know, because they're one world. So why such a term, um, term? You know, it's just interesting.
1: Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, what term do you prefer, right? Because we want to talk about it somehow, right? We want to talk about colonialism and the impacts and the unfair laws.
9: Well, I
1: mean, this is just called Africa. I mean, why... Oh, yeah, no, no, I absolutely agree with you on that. No, I'm completely with you. Because what I mean is when we want to talk about, like, you know, it's not just Africa, that the trade law's disadvantage, right? Yeah. Um,
9: The thing is, you know, it's... It's patronizing, you know, you know, in many respects, because you know you almost want to split the word and say, well, because one is developed, the other one is not, therefore that's a different world, you know, it's so a third world. Yeah, I mean, that is patronizing.
1: Yeah, I'm absolutely in agreement with you, but I think that whatever we want to call them, developed, wealthy, I, I prefer wealthy, personally, wealthy nations, particularly those who become wealthy through really incredibly unjust means are very much responsible for the situation of those who are not in those countries. Can we, can we say that excluded? Yeah. <laughs> right? is, that, is that helpful? I'm not quite sure what to call yeah, non-wealthy wealthy nations, perhaps, is what I yeah. want to say. Yeah. But thank you. Yeah. 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 Um, I really enjoyed that. It really
6: got me thinking again. Um, you've spoken about um, sort of cases of diminished responsibility, or uh, in some instances where there's, certain people think there were no responsibility whatsoever. Um, and used the word prudence a lot which was really interesting Um, one of Aristotle's virtues and defining responsibility (laughs) very much in the free will and determinism model of did you have control I just wonder even if someone did have control is responsibility as a capacity something we expect human beings innately to have do you need an education in responsibility? Do we not expect it? Is it not just that, uh, is it not simplistic to say that people's socioeconomic situation would determine their responsibility? And actually, it's their education regarding responsibility that determines their responsibility. Yes,
1: yeah, so I think it's an interesting point there where we don't tend to think that when children do bad things, we don't always hold them responsible, right? We often excuse them, we regard them as not full agents. And it looks like one reason is we think that you need some education, right? To become responsible, you have to be taught how to make choices, or you have to grow to be an adult, be taught in certain ways. So I think, yeah, I'm in agreement with you about that. Okay. So you had your hand up for a while, and then
0: you go to the front,
8: and then you yeah. Yeah. Thank you for a very interesting lecture. Um, I was <coughs> wondering whether there was a difference between what you said and what you put on the handout. When you when you did the, when you did the introduction of responsibility in logicalitarianism, I think you said that logicalitarianism would say that if you end up being harmed or in an unfortunate position due to no fault of your own, that should be corrected. But on the handout, you write that insofar as inequalities are the result of poor luck, they should be corrected. And isn't it isn't it because in, in the, on the handout you assume kind of a one-to-one relationship between Responsibility—what have you, what you've done, and what is uh, just? But I think, like, if the grasshopper had been working ten times as hard, as hard no, the ants had been working ten times as hard as the grasshopper, and then due to luck, they only ended up being twice as rich as the grasshopper. Nobody would say that it, that we should rec- correct the injustice by giving some of the grasshoppers food. So, like, it seems to be what is really driving our need is that we think that somebody is need, somebody is in a. Like they're being harmed, or that, that. So the real reason we want to help out is not to make a one-to-one relationship between justice and responsibility. It's that somebody is harmed, or like it's a like mor- moral imperative that oh, okay, these guys need our uh, help, we need to do it, and then they need our help due to no fault of their own, and that's why this culpability aspect and our responsibility. But we wouldn't do anything to, to make responsibility. Like it, it just it's only to be harmed. And I think that would also solve your problem with the with the girlfriend compensation and with the being our and it might even like even your critique of the logical why would we why do why do we need this responsibility because if it's in reality because we think that the needy should be harmed then it gives more credence to this saying that okay it's not it's not due to the fault of their own that they're in this unfortunate position so we should help them right? and okay. then it makes more sense to that. So I think
1: you're what's known as a sufficientarian. So you think everyone should have enough, and that's what justice demands of us, right? So no one should be needy. Now, you could hold that position and think responsibility matters, right? So if you're below the line of having enough and you're responsible for being there, your claims are less important than someone who is not responsible for being in that situation. Most of the people I've been talking about, they actually care beyond neediness, okay? So they really think that really any inequalities... uh, they talk about different sort of forms of inequality but lots of them talk about welfare or access to advantage and they say that if someone's life goes less well than someone else's even if neither are like objectively needy still justice kicks in and demands that we change, that we correct that that's the result of brute luck but if it's a result of choice we should leave it be does that sort of answer your question? So I think yours is a very viable position, but it's not the one. So kind of
8: like if the grasshopper really, like if the dance works ten times the of the grasshopper, you should take from the grasshopper and give to the end to make it more like.
1: Some of them would say that. Some of them say that they're more concerned with luck than responsibility. So they're more concerned that no one does badly as a result of luck than they are concerned that you your choices are fully reflected in what you get. Some of them would commit to making that claim. that.
5: That's your question. But I think your sufficientarian approach is probably a good one. Thank you. Um, very interesting lecture. Um, I just wanted to ask you what your views on luck were. Do you think that luck is something you can create or you can move yourself into situations where you might encounter luck? Or do you think that it's something totally random and haphazard?
1: Right. So I think that the way your life goes is sometimes just completely random. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a result of some combination of something like a choice mm-hmm. where you end, you your position yourself, where you end up. So a mix is what I'm going to commit to. That. Thank you. Yeah.
5: Um, Julia. Yeah. Thanks. Just uh, for the lecture, I have two
4: questions, somewhat interrelated, and um, I s- want to rescue this completely egalitarian is that um, maybe, take the example of uh, smoking. Maybe we don't want to hold them responsible for smoking, because in the existing environment, there is so much manipulation of their desires that we shouldn't hold them responsible, because they might not be in full control. But so maybe what we want to do now is to create an environment which is more uh, conducive to make autonomous choices. Say, we can't allow advertising, uh, we, we shouldn't allow smoking or uh, movies that have smoking scenes so that when the environment is, convev- uh, is favorable when making autonomous choices and then we can hold people responsible for their choices and that's number one. Number two is uh, somehow they comment on the global justice issue. Say we don't want to hold Africa responsible for uh, their misfortune but say Greece, maybe they have a democratic structure, maybe they are a resource-rich country now they're bankrupt, or they are going even worse later, shouldn't that be holding more responsible for the misfortune than Africa, and now we
1: shouldn't give that much aid to Greece than to Africa? Okay, I think that's an interesting point. So my comment on Greece would be really the global financial structure is a you know major contributory factor for the situation that Greece finds itself in. So... Whether it's more or less responsible, I think they're interesting issues. Who has to bear the costs is, again, an interesting issue, and they may be different. So maybe when it comes to responsibility in the global sphere, I look a little bit more like a like egalitarian, possibly. Um, and on your first comment about the autonomous stuff, I know you like autonomy. Um, so I guess my worry is that I just don't see how you can eradicate everything that interferes with someone making autonomous choices, right? So there are some really obvious things you can eradicate. So you could... I don't know what you think, you ban private schools, ensure everyone gets a proper autonomous education, enable lots of options, equality of opportunity, etc. I still think there'll be differences, right? So I still think that you wouldn't get everyone's choice being solely something they're responsible for in that society. We can perhaps continue to differ, but I find it hard to imagine that society where no luck comes in. Even if it's constitutive luck, say, or circumstantial luck that I got into a position where I got to make that good or bad choice in the first place.
4: Does that partially answer you at least? You can come back if you want. I'm going to take people who haven't
9: asked the question yet. Right, so you've have, got you have your hand up, Alan, you <laughs> and So, I mean, uh, like, I accept the proposition, like, a responsibility and justice would be like, should be linked as well as I accept that you should like, push for good values in society with respect and the one you mentioned but uh, I find it difficult doing uh, justice and in welfare I find this, uh, this proposition I find it difficult and especially because I don't find it very practical I'm from France, you are like 3 million persons. you have like this very like this very strong the idea today that you, if you're to have a judgment, you should have the right to a fair trial. So, how are you going to make that practical? Like judging those three million per person, so if, you don't, if you don't give them an employment, you say you are responsible for so what you've done, if you give them, the women are going to say, hey, they're just killing you. They're deceiving you. So, in terms of practicality of this like construction, how does that happen in like, society, in, in politics?
1: I think that's a really great point and of course unemployment's a really difficult one at the moment, right? So it looks very strange to me in lots of ways that certain nations like the UK have become very concerned about responsibility to work precisely when there aren't enough jobs, right? I mean, that's extraordinary, right? Why is it now that they think responsibility is such an important factor when we're looking at whether people should get unemployment benefit precisely when it's really hard to get a job? So, I'm not sure this isn't really answering your question, it's sort of talking around it, I acknowledge. But I think that I think that designing welfare systems that hold responsible, if you think that responsibility is anything like having control, is really hard. But if what you say is, I really want to reward prudent choices and not reward imprudent choices say, in health,
9: you might be able to get away with it. But I think it's going to be very tricky. Yeah, do you want to Like, could. like, I, like I think like I could have chosen, like, as a situation for other examples, so an important person, so someone who's going to get run over by a car, and between between the time he gets to the hospital, like, you don't have the time to give him a prayer. But still you have, to, you have to take a decision, and it's dead
8: or alive.
1: Okay, so here's an example of how we could help people responsible for unhealthy lifestyle choices. We could put really high tax on unhealthy things so that they pay in advance for their bad choices, right? We make them bear the burden of their terrible choice. How we make what they want really expensive. That's exactly what we do with cigarettes. So there are ways and means, whether it's perfect or not. But I should probably address yeah. other. I want to get a couple of minutes left. So okay, I'll try and go fast.
7: You you we'll, we'll see, see how many more we can. haven't heard the first part of your very interesting uh, lecture. Um, I'd like to refer to the concept of autonomy, but with a different understanding of responsibility in social terms. There is a famous uh, and admirable uh, Greek and French philosopher, Cornelius Castoriadis, who has introduced the notion of collective autonomy. And he just simply says and proposes that uh, we, as citizens, are responsible for the current situation and the current shape of the world, and uh, he refuses to accept the tendency uh, that all humans during history have, uh, to consider responsible for their uh, situation, the destiny, the god, uh, political parties, or whatever. So I think that if we accept that we are uh, socially responsible under a notion of collective autonomy, that we set the rules of the society that we live in, either by either by uh, choosing that rules or just implicitly uh, accepting that truth. If we accept that we are responsible for the current state of the vote, this is a revolutionary concept of responsibility because if we're responsible for the vote and we don't like it as it is, the logical implication is that we have an obligation to try and change it. I Implicit- have a lot of sympathy that. This is an understanding me. of responsibility, not a, not a conventional and a conservative one in individual terms, but in social terms, that if citizens are responsible for the rules and uh, the current shape of society, they have the the incentive collectively to change things or just accept their destiny as a choice.
1: Yes, and I mean, there is lots of stuff we done on collective responsibility and the responsibility of states. This again comes back to the global justice question, really. This lecture has been very concerned on individual responsibility, but you're absolutely right. There are other ways in which responsibility enters into our moral lives, completely.
4: One last really quick
1: question.
4: Yeah, yeah. um, great lecture. I just wanted to um, press you slightly on the, on the connection between respect and responsibility given that you've kind of shunned this idea of responsibility as control, so um, you're no longer holding people responsible only when there's a really kind of tight link between the agent and her actions and like a really free choice or you know, choice over which she has a lot of control. Why then is it still respectful to hold the agent responsible in those circumstances?
1: Because I think even if there isn't free will, we should treat one another as autonomous moral agents. So you think it's good to just kind of keep this... Practices. I don't think it's pretense. I think we were mistaken to ever think that ideas about metaphysics and free will had anything to do with our practices of responsibility in the first place. It's an important part of how we relate to one another. It's entirely irrelevant to whether there's free will. But we can agree to differ on that
0: one. <laughs> okay, on that I'm sure. Still thought-provoking note. I think um, we should finish and thank Emily for a really great. <laughs>